and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network and all sorts of internet-based uh, podcasting arrangements. Welcome to the show. My name is Stu, and on this week's show, I'm going to be talking about some research from the UK, which discovered a, an amazing feature of bacteria that nobody had been able to observe before, but which might explain why some people get recurring bacterial infections and some people get them lots and some people don't get them at all. Right. This so is the first time it's been reported. Yeah, pretty much they've figured out the mechanism that they do it. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, new research. But also they went back to Howard Florey's research on uh, antibiotics and figured out some stuff that they hadn't worked out before. Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, what I've got, it, I was a bit worried about this because it's some work by some economists and, you know, I'm not sure whether economics really counts as science, but this is a study. Well, I, think, I think you know deep down. They, they don't, you don't find them in the science department of many universities. You don't, but this is a study about science. So okay. it kind of caught my attention and right. it uses a famous, the testing basically a famous principle about science, which is the, the idea that you may have heard that uh, science advances one funeral at a time. As you know, as the eminent people die off, then you know finally other ideas can take their place. Ah, oh, the um, new blood takes over and that kind of thing subverts the, the dominant paradigm and all that stuff. So basically, yeah, some some people have put this to the test, and their results. Uh, well, we'll get into that. They they seem to do seem that there is certainly effect there, but not necessarily in the way that you think. But um, yeah, I will explain the details of that shortly. Claire, what have you got? Well, um, I. I have a question for you, Chris. Do you like oysters? Yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah, some of my yeah. best friends are oysters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of an Australian pastime eating eating oysters, especially mm. in, in summertime. Yep. Um, but with increasing ocean acidification from carbon dioxide, um, the oysters, which, you know, need calcium carbonate to create their shells, are experiencing um, a bit of trouble because of ocean acidification. Um, so, but there's some um, new research and um, some new developments that show that oysters might be a lot hardier than we think. So I'm gonna talk all about that mm. on today's show. Sounds like a pearl of a story. Bacteria. Can't live with them, can't live without them, or so they say. Um, for the most part, obviously, bacteria are not harmful to humans, or at least a huge, a huge proportion of them don't mean us any specific harm. Specific harm. I love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Inc incidental that, harm. They're not maybe. colluding to get to us. Um, <laughs> so our digestion is obviously largely dependent on bacteria. They live all over our skin and in internal organs, especially in our gut, but we don't really think about them all that much unless something goes wrong. That is, when pathogenic bacteria infect humans, we get sick. Uh, and infections range from mild localized swelling of the skin to serious infections of the blood and other organs. Um, and obviously not all infections are caused by the same bacteria. There are numerous specific types of bacterial infection that can be life-threatening, uh, and before the invention of antibiotics in the early 20th century, serious illness was often caused by bacterial infection. 
and is still a major issue for healthcare, even in relatively developed countries. They just did a study that was published in March this year. Uh, in the US, over half of all hospital deaths have been found to have some level of sepsis in the patients. So that's a bodily reaction to infections, which causes further complications to people recovering from infection. So half of all people who died were, were going through a bacterial infection at the time. Um, not always that was the cause of their death, but it's still uh, a huge number. Yeah. Um, and obviously one of the major issues facing medicine today is the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which are becoming a problem. Uh, they're able to resist the effect of antibiotic treatment and go on to reinfect the pa patients after the treatment finishes. So they give them antibiotics, they seem to get better, and then they get sick again because the bacteria are figuring out, well, not figuring out, but they're becoming resistant to the antibiotics we're using. Um, so in a publication from the most recent edition of Nature Communications, researchers have published an explanation of how some bacteria can pull off this trick, and it really is a bit like a disappearing act. So bacteria are often defined by the shape of their individual cells. So probably the most common ones are rods and spheres. If you look at a microscope slide of bacteria, you'll see little spheres or little rods, depending on what kind of bacteria it is. And there's really not a lot of features for us to pick out different bacteria when you look at them down a microscope. Um, but the shape of the bacteria is held by a kind of cell wall that the bacteria produces. So mm. plants have cell walls, which are made of cellulose. Yes. Uh, and fungi have cell walls, which are made of chitin. But bacterial cell walls are made of a polymer called peptidoglycan. Peptidoglycan. Yeah. Not as catchy. Not as catchy, but it is made up of amino acids and sugars. So the bacterial cell wall for each bacteria allows the human immune system to identify pathogenic bacteria. The cell wall is also the recognition system for the antibiotics that we use. And it's one of the things that uh, Howard Florey came across when he was investigating how to fight bacteria was that they had this uh, recognition system so certain substances react with um, the bacterial cell wall um, and disrupt the bacteria during cell division so at, at a point in cell division the cell wall is much thinner and the antibiotic reacts with that and bursts the bacterial cell and that's how they actually kill right. them. Right. So, so it, it's, it's during that vulnerable moment. Yeah, but it can only recognise or can only react with certain kinds of the cell walls of mm. the bacteria. So the research uh, team based at uh, a Newcastle University in the United Kingdom have shown and filmed bacteria in the presence of antibiotics shedding their cell wall and surviving. Wait, what? So inside the cell wall, they have a membrane, which is very, very thin. A cell membrane. A cell membrane. Yes, of okay. Of the bacteria. Yeah. These bacteria, in the presence of antibiotics, get rid of the cell wall and just <gasps> float around in their cell membrane. So they basically lose their shape. Oh, yes. Yeah, so they're no longer the spheres or the... They're no longer the spheres or, or the, the rods, rods. And the antibiotics can't recognise them. Oh! <gasps> And neither can the immune system. They go like, it's like incognito mode yeah. so they for go bacteria. Into, they go into... Even though they're more vulnerable at that point, but they have, yeah. they have no cell wall. Yeah. But they're invisible to the, to the antibiotics, basically. Whoa. So 
they're removing so, the hang on. so is that a type of resistance? It, basically what it means is um, it removes the thing that the antibiotics all work on targeting the bacteria um, and they survive with just a cell membrane, but they're very weak at that point, but they can survive yeah. inside a body quite well because they're protected. And can they reproduce? The, well, this is the thing. Once they stop administering the antibiotics, they regrow their cell wall oh. and just go back to work. <laughs> this is like, I'm having flashes of like uh, Terminator, like, <laughs> like the T-1000. Yeah, they froze it with liquid nitrogen <laughs> and then it, no. Um, it's so, a bit like a, a well, no, it's not like a lizard giving off its, chucking away its tail or something like that, but it's a... It's, it sort of is because I guess the like antibiotics could be attacking yeah. the... The cell wall, but there's nothing left in it, so it doesn't matter yeah. if you break wow. it all down. Um, and the other thing is uh, that they found um, was that so once they stop administering the antibiotics, they revert to their cell-bound shapes. They start growing a new cell wall, and they start dividing as normal and reinfect any patient who happens to have one of these bacteria that's capable of doing that. So also that means the bacteria that are most easily able to shed their cell wall are the ones that produce in higher numbers and therefore yeah. we get a resistance building up in the population. Um, now, the thing that allows the bacteria to escape their cell wall, here's the <laughs> other thing, is produced by the human body. There's an organelle called a lysosome. Yeah. Which is part of our... I feel like I learned about that in yeah. biology in year nine. Part of our immune system. Guess what it does? <laughs> breaks down bacterial cell walls because that's one way for our body to kill the bacteria. So basically the human body, the human immune system is breaking down the bacterial cell wall a little bit, allowing the bacteria to wriggle its way out. What? And then it can reinfect us later on <gasps> once we stop applying antibiotics. So it's body a, invaders, Stu. Yeah, yeah. Invasion oh of God. the body snatchers. Yeah. Cell wall snatches something. Cell wall, cell wall snatches, um, yeah. So yeah, it is. It's amazing because the lysosome was one of the things that Howard Florey was studying yeah, when he okay. came across penicillin as being the antibiotic which triggered the invention of all those other antibiotics, which are now not working so much. So some of the work he did on identifying the lysosome is now coming back in handy because they're saying, "Oh, look, it's actually our own immune response that's helping the bacteria evade." the medicine that we're using to treat the bacteria. So we, so do we know what type of bacteria are using this mechanism one to of, evade? Well, the, the one that they were studying was specifically uh, a bacteria that is causes urinary tract infections. And a lot of people who get urinary tract infections get recurring urinary tract infections. And it's always been an issue. They couldn't figure out exactly why. Some people were really susceptible, other people took some antibiotics and they went away. So it's definitely there and it's definitely an issue and it's probably got a lot more benefit to understand this about chronic reinfections than all bacteria. Probably they're not all doing this, but it's a pretty uh, amazing little process that they're little disappearing act that they've developed um, to avoid our medicine. <laughs>
right now, the German physicist Max Planck. He is regarded as basically having kicked off quantum theory. Oh, and he kicked off that craze a couple of years ago, planking. Everyone makes that joke. It's yeah, yeah, that was him. That was him. Even though he died a long time ago, he was his influence was still around. Yeah, he it's invented just an planking. old photo of him yeah. planking. Yeah, yeah, on top of yeah. That's Tower that's how it happened. Yeah. Wasn't no, I've it? got some. I've got some old photos of him actually. Um, that I was going to show you because he what he did, did. now because what he did, he kicked off basically a revolution in physics with his with his quantum theory. Um, where he basically what he did, he showed that the energy of heat radiation is proportional to um, its frequency uh, multiplied by a number, which coincidentally is called Planck's constant. Right, and why is that so important? Well, that was basically what founded quantum theory because the the light was given off in units, which is the photons. There was like a quantum of energy that was given off. Right, that had a particular frequency. Yeah. Um, and yeah, look now because it was such a big thing, you know, a big revolution like this. They're not they're not easy. Um, it took a toll on him, it seems. Um, here's here's a picture of him as a young man. This is in 1878. Um, yeah, looks looks like a guy maybe in his early 20s. Um, great head of hair. He does have a monocle though. I mean, he does have a monocle, well, but cheaper than buying a pair of glasses. Are you yeah. sure it's a monocle? He has a bow tie as well, though. Yeah. So anyway, his ne- next picture is of him in 1901, which is the year after he presented his equation to the world. <laughs> All right. That looks like a crazy person. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah, his hair, hair is, is on, on end. Yeah. Um, he has sort of like a dead look behind his eyes. Yeah. And his moustache. Even though I didn't, I didn't even know moustaches could grow ten different ways on a man's face, but that is yeah. Yeah. that looks like that moustache got up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> look. Clearly, he was he was um, aware of how difficult changing <laughs> physics was on himself. He's also aware of how difficult it can be to change scientific <laughs> thinking. Because one of his most famous quotes... He also lost his monocle. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. One of his most famous quotes, this is the English version of it, is, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation <laughs> grows up that is familiar with it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. This is often yeah. paraphrased as "science advances one funeral at a time." Mm-hmm. Um, now, some uh, economists have put this idea to the test, and they found out there is some truth behind it. Uh, not always, but there's uh, is often enough to be worth considering. So, um, uh, yes, we're going to look at some economics. Um, we did discuss whether that counts as science. Um, I should say it is actually sometimes called the dismal science. So it is perhaps Let's science, not start a, with that. a dismal version of it. Um, but no, like the reason they're doing this, because um, as they say in their paper, much of today's economy base is based on scientific advances. So it's clearly in their interest and having efficient science is clearly in economic interest. Um, and, you know, the other people who study these kinds of things are philosophers of science. They're often looking at the reasons why things happen and the direction that science moves in, as opposed to, you know, how you improve the rate in, you know, studying the rate of scientific mm. advances. Um, so now this, this paper is by MIT professor of management, of all things, um, Pierre Azoulay and his colleagues. It was published in August 2019 in the journal American Economic Review. Um, now, they start off by doing, you know, looking at some previous studies in this field, because there have been other people looked at this, and point out that Planck, the point that Planck was actually trying to make, that these big changes, these big paradigm shifts, they, they actually doesn't work the way that he said. Um, it doesn't? No. Um, so he's wrong. He's wrong on that big kind of stuff. Because, you know, you think about it, like, um, you know, you get something big, like quantum mechanics, for instance. So Planck published his, his groundbreaking equation in 1900. He won a Nobel Prize for it in 1918, which wasn't that much later. And then, you know, about seven years after that, we had 
Kennedy codified the Copenhagen interpretation, which is the modern kind of understanding of quantum mechanics. So it was essentially within a generation, mm. the world had accepted that. Because essentially when you have a big paradigm shift that changes the way you see things, then it becomes hard to ignore. Mm. You know, someone points out that, you know, the Earth is round, for instance, and they sail sailing around the world. It can be a bit hard to deny the evidence, that level of things. So what these economists in this later study did, though, is they decided to look at what happens in the normal um, course of science, though, when it's not these big paradigm shifts. Because paradigm shifts like that are actually fairly rare as well, let's be honest. And so they decided to look at biomedical research, which um, was perfect for this because uh, it hasn't had a paradigm shift for quite a while, or they considered. We're, we're still pretty sure that the body works the same way we always kind of thought it worked. Essentially, they dated it back to what's called the central dogma of molecular biology, which is the idea that um, information comes from nucleic acids, you know, your DNA and your RNA, into proteins, uh, and doesn't right. go back the other way. I mean, that that was fairly recently. Yeah, that was like, um, you know, 50s, 60s. 60s? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's fairly recent. That's about 50 years ago. So 70, yeah. Almost, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So it's it's the thing. So it, and there's a lot has happened, though, in that time since then. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of advances. Um, and it's, so it's a very big field. There's a lot of data to analyze. It's also, from an economics point, it's very, a lot of economics going on. Like, it's a very valuable field. Um, so, yeah, they, they decide to, to look at this and look at this particular field and see what they could see about the way science worked. Um, so they used online databases and they identified... 452 elite scientists uh, who had um, who had died while they were still um, actively publishing uh, research. Um, well, actually, active. Generally, they were the last author listed on the papers, which is usually the head of the lab. Right. That. Yep. So they looked at the people who were basically the last author on papers, who were like eminent scientists, and then looked at their work for the last five years before they died. Before the funeral. Before the funeral. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so they looked at those and they also, they looked at what happened to the subfields that they had published those papers in. And then they kind of matched them to a control group of scientists who, with similar kind of features who hadn't died. Right. Um, and what they found is that after the, these scientists died, um, the output of their previous collaborators in those subfields decreased by 20.7%. There's a big drop-off in the people working with them, working in their field, which is kind of, I suppose, if you get ahead of the lab is gone, then maybe the lab disbands or something like that. Or the Considering how many labs are named after the person who's in charge of the lab, that wouldn't surprise me if exactly. that was the case. There was also an increase of 8.6% in output from people who hadn't collaborated with them in those same fields. Right. Yeah. But these, these weren't... So the- it's, it's, it's almost like a mourning period. Um, of lower productivity in those specific areas. No, there was an increase. No, there was there, oh, there were new people coming in. Oh, and right. these were and these also they weren't their competitors. They weren't their rivals in the field. They were actually newcomers to the field. People who hadn't published in that field before would suddenly come in and start publishing work on that on that topic. Um, so yeah, it seems that somehow the presence of this this star scientist will like puts off other people from entering the field. Um, and they're not sure, kind of sure how. They didn't seem to be intentionally doing it by, you know, they weren't, the people who they looked at weren't necessarily in big positions of power, like, you know, from a nationwide kind of point of view, something like that. But, um, you know, maybe just... Could it have been a funding thing? Well, possibly, because then all their colleagues would also be involved in funding and journals and this kind of stuff. But it may be even just the reputation of, you know, oh, everyone's following what this one person says. 
Um, and so it's kind of a disincentive to enter that field. And once they're out of the way, you go, well, maybe I'll give that a go. So, yeah, it's not clear how it's happening, um, but yeah, it does seem to be an effect there. Um, but what they couldn't say, though, is what they refuse to say in the paper is whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, um, because one of the things they found is that these newcomers... <laughs> you, you, you wanted some, some firm judgment on this? Well, I mean, it sounds like it's a, it's a bad thing to discourage people coming in and to have new newcomers come in and, and give new ideas. But like one of the things they pointed out was that the, the people coming into the field didn't actually publish more papers overall. They just shifted their attention to this new field that they hadn't worked in before. So the total scientific output hasn't changed. If they just redirected, they just, you know, kind of infiltrated another field that they hadn't been in before. So, you know, is it is this advancing science or are they just, you know, you know, opportunistically who knows? Who knows? I mean, I think it sounds like a good thing. Surely new ideas in a field is always good, you'd think. Yeah, but also, I guess, working on the same ideas and progressing them slowly over, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years of a, over a career is also, you can also get um, some really solid research and outputs from that as well. And that's one of the points I made too, absolutely. And having this opportunity to establish that kind of thing, it certainly is a good incentive, it's a good way of yeah, building out that career. Look, it's also looking, thinking about the sample of people that they looked at here. So they did go looking for people who are actively publishing in active fields when they died prematurely. So maybe if you sort out like scientists whose career was in decline, you'd probably get a different result. You know, we'll see. We'll see how this pans out. Whether there's anything useful to this in the nature of science, but I think it's interesting that we had, you know, Planck. He gave us the back to him. He gave us the photon. You know, the quantum of of light energy that's released um, as heat radiation. And now, essentially, the funeral is like like a quantum of scientific energy that takes us in a new direction. Likes an oyster at Christmas or maybe when you're on holidays. Is that just me? My I'll family like really chow down on oysters at Christmas. I, I just I, I have a I have a distance limit to the coast. Yeah, doesn't it doesn't yes. really matter where I am as yes. long as I'm near enough to a beach that I can assume safely that oysters <laughs> come have come from, there. from the sea close by. If if I'm too far inland, no thanks. No thanks. No. Yeah, I mean you know they are synonymous with um, aphrodisiacs and you know being very expensive at um, fancy restaurants and all that sort of thing. Cutting up your feet when you're not wearing. Oh yeah, shoes in right. Them. Yeah. Cutting nasty. up your feet. Oh, they're real nasty. Yeah. My whole childhood is spent um, getting oyster oyster shells out of, <laughs> out of my feet. Um, well, I mean you know they have been. Eaten with relish by people for tens of thousands of years. Or with lemon juice. Relish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or without, or with lemon juice, or with salt. Worcestershire um, sauce. <laughs> Kilpatrick? Nah, I'm much more of a natural sort of person. Um, and they made up a huge part of the diet of First Nations people from coastal areas around Australia. So if you've ever seen a midden, um, you get a lot of oyster shells there. Um, do you know the type of oyster that you prefer? There are three species of oysters um, grown in Australia commercially. Uh, I don't know which one is my favourite. I'll just eat whatever's on offer, basically. Oh, yeah, right. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to put a name to it. I think my favourite is the Sydney Rock Oyster. Mm. Well, you you're a you're a New South Welsh person. I am a New South Welsh person, um, or Sacastria glomerata um, to their friends, obviously. So the other oysters are the Pacific oysters, and then you've also got um, the flat oyster as well. So the Pacific and the Sydney Rock Oyster are cupped oysters. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. As you can imagine why they're called cupped oysters, they have that little like cup shape happening. Anyway. And so the flat oysters, there's and the flat less oysters, oyster? There's less oyster. Right. Yeah. You tend to find them around, um, well, I've, I've seen them around the south coast of New South Wales. Okay. Um, yeah, but they, they certainly don't have that. Um, scoop scoopy mm. s- scooped shell yeah um yeah and they're they're big business so in new south wales the oyster aquaculture business is worth around 35 million dollars uh one thing that's fundamental to um oyster aquaculture and oysters in general is um their hard shell as you can imagine so no shell no oyster and of course this isn't a problem so long as the oysters are in an ocean or an aquaculture system that is slightly alkaline so you can grow your nice calcium carbonate shell and spend the rest of your time doing other things that an oyster needs to do that isn't growing the shell which is what suction feeding they don't really get around much do they filter feeding reproducing growing your body so that you can be sold off at Christmas time. <laughs> I don't know. Those sorts of things. Just generally oysting. Just generally oysting. Um, but if the ocean gets more acidic, uh, so if the pH starts lowering, which we know is happening in oceans due to increased carbon dioxide dissolving in the water um, and creating carbonic acid um, and an increase in runoff in coastal areas, then oysters cannot grow their shells as effectively as they have been. And as an oyster, you would end up spending a lot more time growing your shell instead of doing all that other oystering stuff that we were talking about before. So this is becoming more and more of a problem for oyster farmers worldwide. It's putting stresses on on the oysters and you end up with entire crops of oysters with damaged shells. And, And then you've got lower or like smaller you end up with smaller oysters as well so you don't give get the sort of larger desired table oysters that you would have gotten um a while ago um but yeah so this is this is an an issue in new south wales um but 25 years ago so rewind 25 years ago um and the new south wales government actually put a lot of time and money into a oyster selective breeding program interestingly wow yeah um and they were looking in this selective breeding program to find a strain of oyster that could handle diseases and pests and pretty much just be quite resilient um and a super oyster this a a super oyster but they were breeding this oyster specifically for disease resistance mm. not necessarily for anything else but from that breeding program uh, they found have found an oyster that is um, actually tough enough to um, grow its shell in um, in more acidic water so it actually is doing okay in the face 
of ocean acidification and climate change. This was completely unexpected. They weren't, I guess, selecting for this when they were doing the breeding of the oysters. They just came up with this hmm. um, and and then found it. And, um, and yeah, so this, <clears throat> this particular oyster that they found, um, this strain of oyster makes their shell very hard and they do it with less energy. So not only um, do you have an oyster that's got a great shell, but you can also um, get a bigger oyster as well. So as you can imagine, it's pretty great for farmers. They're all very excited about this. Um, and there's not a lot of good news going around when you're thinking about the impacts of um, ocean acidification and climate change and how it's going to affect people um, and their livelihoods, but also shows the benefit, I guess, of the government and industry putting in funding for long-term research into agricultural systems and aquacultural systems. Um, and of course, the benefit of biodiversity um, in facing unknown environmental changes into the future. So this, um, this resistant oyster that um, can produce this hard shell is now being tested in other waters to see um, if it's suitable on the world stage and um, maybe this Sydney rock um, oyster um, will have some luck overseas. Anyone got any puns? Um, no, I'm going to just going to clam up now. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.